Some mistakenly believe that Jesus' incarnation and arrival in human history means that somehow he was created. In other words, they believe that his sonship was a result of the incarnation, not because of his eternal status as the second person of the Trinity or the Son of God. In this episode, we're going to look at what the Bible truly has to say about these things and which view, whether it's eternal sonship or incarnational sonship, is correct. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Glad to have you as always. If you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you do so. You can also check me out on Substack. Plenty of awesome content there for you that's aggregated from a lot of different places that I post. And you just never know with Facebook and YouTube and all these major platforms, especially with all the things going on these days, they are pretty trigger happy with their censoring. So stay in touch through my website or through my Substack. It's always a great place to find new content and see what's up. But today we are continuing our series on the Trinity and we're we're really going to be doing more of a condensed episode probably today. We'll see what happens, but it's going to be more to set up the stage for the next episode which we're really diving into a very important issue about Jesus's subordination and that's going to be incarnational versus eternal subordination. Now don't don't worry if you don't know what those terms mean, we're going to unpack them. But basically, it has to do with how do we understand Jesus's subordination to the Father that was demonstrated during his earthly life on earth? And in order to understand that and what it really means, because there's a lot of people who deny the Trinity who say that basically because Jesus was subordinate, then that that somehow proves that he has a different ontology, remember from the first episode, meaning nature of being, than the Father, meaning Jesus isn't God because he's showing subordination during his earthly life. That's the claim. And we're going to look at that the next episode. But in order to do that effectively, we have to look at something else before that, which is sonship, meaning was Jesus inheriting sonship when he became incarnate? Was he created like some people believe? Or was he eternally the son? And that doesn't mean eternally subordinate, it just means what is the status of Jesus' sonship? And that's why today we're looking at eternal sonship versus incarnational sonship. Again, very long theological words, but really it just means, was Jesus always the Son of God? Meaning, was that always his identity? Or was it something as, as a result of his incarnation, which is not the truth? That's not what the Bible teaches. We looked at this in some previous episodes, which I'm going to review briefly But again, we have to understand these things because the next conversation is a little more heavy. It's a little more, you know, in-depth and involved. So in order to understand all these things, we have to look at the nature of Jesus, the nature of his incarnation, the nature of Christ. We have to look at the purpose of the incarnation. Why did it happen? What, What was the reasoning for it? Why did God have to become man? It's very important. Some Christians don't know the answer to that question, which is not good. You should know the answer to that question. And we'll explore that today. But we have looked at so far, again, everything has to be understood in context, especially when you're talking about the nature of Jesus and the nature of Christ. We looked at the testimony of Jesus as God. What did he say about himself? We looked at that previously. We looked at what the apostles had to say about Jesus as God. So no change in ontology, 
Jesus is God. We looked at the evidence that shows that the Father and the Holy Spirit are both separate persons, and also God, especially for the Holy Spirit. So if you haven't checked those episodes out, go back and watch them, get edified, understand the truth, because especially with the Holy Spirit, people have all sorts of fanciful theories about that. But the Holy Spirit is a person, and that person is also God, which is what the Bible teaches We looked at the Trinity and salvation and why the gospel has to be a Trinitarian gospel. You you do not have the gospel if you're a modalist, if you're a Unitarian. You you can't have the gospel because the gospel is Trinitarian. So go watch that episode if, if that's news to you, if that's something that you've never heard before. I really encourage you and I challenge you to go and learn those things because ultimately, if we don't have a Trinity... It impacts the gospel, and that's why it's so important. But we also looked at titles like the Son of Man. Uh, recently, we looked at the Son of God. What is these? What do these titles really mean? Because a lot of times people who reject the Trinity believe that the Son of God proves that Jesus is different than God, has a different quality, different divinity. When in fact, we looked at what the Bible actually has to say And the Son of God is actually proof that Jesus is God, and in fact, the second person of a triune God. So it goes the other way around of what people are actually saying about this. The same is with the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a complex title that Jesus uses to refer to himself that has both human qualities as a humble servant, as a propitiation for sins. Remember, we talked about that in the Son of Man episode, and again, this is why the incarnation happened. We need a propitiation. We need a blood sacrifice and one that will last forever. And of course, that's where Jesus comes in. His sacrifice was once for all, and it was perfect. But the Son of Man has propitiatory meanings. It has human meanings, and it also has divine conquering king slash Messiah meanings. Very, very important because a lot of people miss that. The Son of Man is not just a human type of title for Jesus. It is his complex nature of the incarnation, which is the God nature and the human nature intertwined into one person. And that's a mystery. So all of the things that I just mentioned are context for what we're going to be talking about today. And that's very important. So if this is new, if you're just jumping in, I highly recommend going and reviewing those previous episodes because it's all very important. But biblical Christianity, since the Council of Chalcedon in about 451 AD, affirms that Christ has two natures and one person. So any kind of heresy that, or I should say, let me put it this way, anything that blends the natures into one nature or confuses them in any way or tries to split the person up results in heresy. And there's plenty of heresies throughout the church's history that did exactly that. In fact, one of the churches, the Eastern Church, that split off after the councils of Chalcedon, believes still to this day that there is only one nature in Christ, which is a heresy, because Christ needs to have two natures. He needs to be human so that he could be made in the likeness of sin and be punished in the likeness of sin and be our propitiation. So you see, Christ has to have two natures because as the God nature, he can forgive sins, he's eternal, and his sacrifice is eternally binding, it's eternally successful. 
you need to have two natures. Unitarians, they reject the divinity of Christ. And so, of course, you can't have a gospel because you don't have atonement in the way that the Bible tells you that atonement has happened. So these things are just very important. It seems like we're splitting hairs on philosophy or theology, but we're really not. These are actually foundational ideas and understandings to have for biblical Christianity. So Jesus has two natures, one person. In theology, it's called hypostasis, meaning the two natures are, you know, they're intertwined seamlessly. It's, it's a mystery. It's the best way we can articulate his nature, the incarnation. Just like the Trinity is the best model that we have to articulate something beyond understanding, which is the nature of God's being, as one being existing in three persons. We don't understand how that works in our limited 3D universe, but it doesn't mean it's illogical or impossible for God. And we looked at many reasons in the last few episodes with that. So, eternal sonship and incarnational sonship. Incarnational sonship is basically the idea that Jesus became the Son of God through the incarnation. There's a lot of ways to take this. It was an appointed type of thing. Maybe Jesus was created the incarnation. There's a lot of different heresies. Eternal sonship says that Jesus was always the Son of God. Now again, don't confuse this with some sort of change in ontology, that somehow Jesus is less than the Father or different in a different divinity in any, any kind of way. It just means that Jesus is the Son of God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son of God. See how that works? But the problem is that people take verses, out, like with everything, people take verses out of context and create all sorts of theologies. The Mormons say things like, well, Jesus is begotten by the Father or begotten of the Father. But what they mean by that is completely different than what a biblical Christian would mean by begotten in their understanding or in just in their basic understanding of who Jesus is. So Mormonism is not Christianity. It is a religion that uses a lot of the same words as Christianity but their understanding of what those words mean and are is completely different, completely contrary to the gospel. So, what verses are used to support this idea? And there aren't too many, but we're going to review them because these are the, pretty much the popular ones. And the first one's in Hebrews, and the, these aren't necessarily in any order, but in Hebrews, this is chapter 1, verse 5, and we looked at this verse in the previous episode, when we looked at, uh, I believe, the Son of Man. But in Hebrews 1, verse 5, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So the, so the, the part where it says, You are my Son, today I have begotten you, this is quoting Psalm 2, and we're going to look at that in just a second. But it's very important to have context very, very important. This was in the Son of God episode. I meant Son of Man, but this was talked about in the Son of God episode. So make sure you go check that out if you want a deeper dive. But we're going to try to kind of repeat it here in case you missed it. But this is talking, if you look at the context of Psalm 2, it's talking about the appointment of a king, the, the setting up of a king. And let's look at Psalm 2 
and what it says. Now, this is the reign of the Lord's anointed. Verse 6, we're going to do verse 6 through about verse 12. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is God speaking. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to my Lord, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And again, we talked about this previously, how people, when you when you look and see, take, taking refuge is something exclusively to Yahweh. You don't take refuge in a created being. You don't take refuge in... You know, anything, anyone less than God. And so this immediately, even the Old Testament presents you with these shadows of, well, you have God, but then you also have somebody else who's also God. How does this work if there's only one God? And the answer is a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we'll look at the Old Testament shadows in some future episodes. But I want you to note that when he says in verse, I believe it's, uh, Seven, yeah, verse seven. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. So notice the the sentence here. It says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the the object, the son, is, is the son. He's already the son. It's an eternal state. Not today you are my son. It's you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, begetting, whatever this means, and we're going to find out in just a second, but begetting and being the son are two very different things. This is very important to put in your mind. It doesn't say, today you are my son, or today I have created you. It says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So let's look at what begetting means. Well, first piece of context we want to look at is in John, one of his letters, where begetting is referring to something new happening, like a new appointment. This is in John 1, verse 5 through 18. And we're actually going to look at this in the KJV because it's a little more clear. We know that whoever, whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. So we who are born again are begotten of God. Now, I didn't include the many verses in the book of Acts and in other places where it says that when you are, or I should say, when somebody believes, they are appointed to believe. I probably should have done that. There's a lot of really good verses about that. But basically, if you look in the book of Acts, there's many, many examples where it is very clear that believing, and of course, this is consistent with other places like Romans 8, those who believe are appointed to believe. So there's an appointment factor to coming into faith, meaning God has appointed you to believe. And of course, when you experience that belief, you are born again. And this is what John is talking about. We are begotten of God. There's a change of some, some kind of change that's happening. And it gets a little clearer when we look back in Hebrews and we use that as context to interpret Hebrews, of course, 
Later in Hebrews, the first thing we looked at was in Hebrews, the first chapter of Hebrews. But later in Hebrews, in Hebrews 5, it talks about Jesus as the high priest. And this is all the way, actually, it starts in Hebrews 4. Jesus as the great high priest. But in Hebrews 5, it says this. This is uh, 1 through 6. For every high priest taken from, actually, I'm going to use ESV. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So all Christ did not, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, if you don't know, he was this figure in the Old Testament, a very mysterious figure. There's a lot of debates on whether that was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ or was it an actual person, but the details were left out in order to create a type for the future. I lean more towards the latter, but, you know, again, it's both are equally possible. The point is, that the real point is that the author of Hebrews again uses a citation to Psalm 2, but in this time, he clarifies this citation and reference by showing that his understanding of the word begetting or begotten in Psalm 2, verse 7, has to do with the appointment of a high priest. And the Son, of course, is being appointed as the priest, and the Son is Jesus. Do you see how all of this ties together? Now, if we even want to wrap in what we previously just talked about with John being begotten of God, another interesting thing to tie into this is that we, as the elect of God who are being being saved and being sanctified, who God has chosen to save, who he's appointed to believe, we are a nation of priests. That's what Hebrews says. So the church is a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. So we're all priests of God in some sense. Obviously, Jesus is the maxim of that. He's the perfection. He's the high priest. But there's all these new spiritual meanings that are happening in the New Testament. We're offering spiritual sacrifices, putting up our bodies as living sacrifices. And so putting it all together, begetting, begotten, has to do with being appointed. And in the specific case of Jesus, it had to do with his appointment as a high priest. The author applies what is spoken in Psalm 2 and Psalm 10 with the order of Melchizedek to the appointment of a priest. Of course, he's talking about Jesus as the great high priest. So he connects these two psalms together, and he connects that to Jesus's appointment as a priest. And this is because Jesus wasn't always a high priest until he sacrificed. He was always the son, but he wasn't always the high priest. You had to have all the Old Testament pictures, of course, the the typology of the Levitical priesthood and the temple sacrifices in order to paint an imperfect picture of what Christ would do prophetically. 
Remember also, there's a lot of intercessory pictures in the Old Testament. We'll talk about this in the future with the angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, even Melchizedek is a great picture of Christ. Moses is the intercessor. Job is intercessor. So there's all these pictures of the intercessors besides the Levitical priesthood that were sort of appointed by God in order to do intercession. So this is a very continual theme throughout the Bible. Now we know Jesus was also uniquely appointed to be the one one and only mediator between God and man. This is in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, very important verse. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So he's the high priest who made the ultimate sacrifice. And as a result, he's the high, he's the mediator. He's the only mediator between God and man. That's why you don't go to the priest to the confessional booth. That's why you don't trust in the Pope. That's why you don't trust in the bishop. You have one mediator. That's why you don't trust in Mary or any of the saints who are dead. You trust in Jesus because he's the only one that lives forever to intercede for you. And he's interceding for us now. So this is all having to do with Christ as the mediator between God and man who was appointed to be the high priest. And that appointment happened in time and space. But he was always eternally the son. So the point of this is that the author of Hebrews saw the word begotten in Psalm 2 as an appointment, not as the creation of the son. Very, very important. Meaning that Psalm 2, which is what people use, cannot be used to say that Jesus was somehow created or any less of a divine being than the Father, because obviously it's taking out of context. Remember that when Jesus said, this is from the Son of God episode, but when he claimed to be the Son of God, the Jews saw that as blasphemy, as claiming to be equal with God. We looked at, for example, John 5 verse 18, where it says, Jesus is equal with God. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus and accused him of blasphemy countless times. At least five times are documented that I documented previously in, in the previous episodes. So it's very important to understand that saying that you're the son of God in the Jews' eyes was making yourself equal with God. It was a divine component to the Son of God. Everybody knew that. I also knew that the Son of the King had the same privileges as the King. That was a cultural understanding. So, of course, when you call God your Father, what does that mean? That means you have the same ontology as God. So, of course, that's why the Jews accused him of blasphemy. Of course, it's not true, but they nevertheless wanted to kill him for it. In John 5, verse 22 through 23, which is just a few verses later, Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now look, you have a serious problem if you reject the Trinity with this and many, many other verses. How can the Son 
who even let's say you believe that there's incarnational sonship, maybe that Jesus became the son in the incarnation. He was never really the son. How can the almighty God give all authority to judge to a created being? How can you honor, i.e. worship and pay homage to and trust in and take refuge in somebody the same way that you do with the father? unless they're God. If Jesus is not God, what what he's saying here in these verses and in many other places is idolatry. And of course it's not, because Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, of the triune God. One being, three persons. That is the only way to explain these things. Everybody knows John 1, John 1 verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. So separate from God, but also God. And we we broke this down in very detail. A lot of people like to use theos and theon, which is in the Greek, to, to argue that somehow Jesus is different, but it's not true. Go check out that previous episode. Moving on, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And of course, in later in 14, we know who the Word really is. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word is the Son, is Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning with God, meaning he's not created. He was with God, meaning he's separate from God, but he is God. How do you make sense of all that? You make sense of it through the Trinity. So Jesus is God. The Son was preexistent. The Word was always around. He's always been the Son. He's always been the Son. He did not become the Son during the Incarnation. But if being the Son equals being God, then Jesus' Sonship is eternal. Do you see how that connects? Jesus is God. He was always around. He was preexistent before time and space. He was with God, and he was the Son. He was eternally the Son of God. That is his identity, is part of who, the, his nature of being. He is God, he is the Son of God. This is the Trinitarian understanding. But remember, there are many sons of God as types for the Son of God, which is what Jesus is called. We had angels, we had Adam being called a Son of God, Timothy was called son in the faith by Paul. All these, and these are just a few, but all of these point to the reality of the Son of God. Nobody was called the Son of God the way Jesus was called the Son of God. There's one line in Genesis where it reviews the lineage of people, and it does refer to Adam as the Son of God but not in the way that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. Because the context of the phrase is that so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, so-and-so was, like, meaning where were they coming from? And, of course, Adam was created by God. But Jesus is uncreated, very clearly so, from all of the other things we just talked about. So the Son of God is the penultimate, the the ultimate, the, the fulfillment of all of these pictures— the one that is from God, the Son of God. So a couple final thoughts to wrap this up. Father-Son relationships on earth are types and shadows 
of the truth. We shouldn't try to fit God into a box that we ourselves are limited by. Very, very important. I talked about this in the first episode, where even words like person, when we apply that to the three persons of the Trinity, has to be used very conservatively, because person, not all things of personhood apply to God, like being in two, two things, being in the same space at the same time. That applies to persons. One being applies to persons, but it doesn't apply to God. God is not bound by the rules that we're bound. He does not bound by any rules. God is not part of time and space. He exists outside of it. So very, very important that we don't try to limit God with our understanding of father-son relationships. This is the same when we say the phrase son of God. Very important because this has to be, just like son of man, has to be examined in context. Everybody who denies the Trinity, who argues against it, who uses terms like, well, you see, says Son of God or the Son of Man as a way to argue against the divinity of Christ, 100% of the time takes things out of context. Because again, if you go just review the previous episodes on Son of Man and Son of God, it's very clear that the context of these terms actually point to Jesus' divinity and Godhood, if you really study them. So that's that's the great irony. But in John 4, verse 24, it says, God is spirit. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So we know that God as a being, as a triune being, is spirit, meaning that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are spirit. God as the Son, the eternal Son, took on flesh and through the incarnation became the person, the physical person of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. We know in Matthew 1 verse 20 that he was conceived by the Spirit. And in Romans 8 verse 9 it says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So this is why you need a Trinitarian gospel, people. This is why you need to understand the Trinity, because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. How do you deal with that? Well, Christ is God. Doesn't mean that the modalist understanding of Jesus phasing in and out of the Father, then now he's the Spirit, now he's the Son. No, it's just painting to you a picture because words are limited. We are extremely limited with our vocabulary and the physical world to describe God who is beyond description, beyond this physical world. But nonetheless, you need the Trinity. Jesus had a human nature so that he could be in the likeness of sin and basically be the propitiation that we needed. We know that from Romans 8, verse 3 through 4, where it says, for God has not, for God has done that what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous, and re- righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Where Adam failed because he was our federal representative, that was by design so that Jesus can be our federal representative. 
and succeed. So Jesus has to have a human nature in order to do that. See why this is so important? He has to have a human nature. But he also has to have a divine nature so that he could forgive sins and redeem the glory of God. In Mark 2, verses 5 through 11, it says that only God can forgive sins. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. There they go again. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Such a profound interchange. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And the way that you know that he's God, basically, because only God can forgive sins, is through the miracles. The miracles were proof to to authenticate who Jesus was, that he was, that he is God, that he is from God and that he is God. Very important. He had to have a divine nature in order to fulfill that. But also very importantly, which this a lot of people don't understand, or I should say aren't aware of really with the gospel which is that the first and foremost reason why Jesus came to be sacrificed on the cross before anything else was to vindicate the name and character of God. Very, very important. Romans 3, verses 21 through 25. The righteousness of God through faith. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is what you need to know. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. This is such an important verse, and I don't think too many people really focus on it or understand its implications. God was incredibly merciful to so many people throughout history before the cross. David and Bathsheba, classic example. David basically rapes somebody, and then he kills her husband. Rape and murder. Nathan brings it to his attention. He feels guilty. He repents. What does Nathan say? Don't worry, you're not going to die. God has put away your sin. Do you realize how significant of an issue this is for a perfectly just being? How can a perfectly just being forgive sins? This is the problem of the universe that Christianity solves. There's no other religion, and I don't say Christianity is a religion, but there's no other spiritual path that solves this problem. They can't, because you need to approach God with a blood sacrifice. And the only way to have that for eternity is to have an eternally valuable sacrifice. 
that redeems, first off, redeems the glory of God, the Almighty, the Creator, for having been so merciful all of these thousands of years where he passed over sins because he's merciful. And yet he's also just, so he looks abominable in his own standards. See the problem that God has to solve by forgiving us? He looks abominable by his own standards because his standards say that it's an abomination to justify the wicked. And yet God has justified the wicked. He's forgiven sins. And so God's glory, God's glory as a judge, as a righteous judge, had to be vindicated. God had to prove that he is so serious about sin that he sent his only son, the eternal son, that is eternally valuable, is infinitely valuable to die. That is how serious God is about sin, so that you never forget that grace is not cheap. That the grace that God showed in the Old Testament to David was not cheap. The only reason God was so merciful was because the cross was scheduled. Acts 4, verse 26 through 27, I believe, 28. The cross was predestined. The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. The only reason reality existed was because Jesus was scheduled to go die on the cross. That's a profound thought. But again, we'll go back to the the topic at hand. How can you have a created being vindicate the character of God on the cross? It's impossible. It is impossible. For all of the sins that God passed over, for all of the glory that God allowed to be put to the side when he was merciful, do you see the value that needed to be sacrificed? There's no created being that could ever be created that would have the infinite value that Christ has. Every sacrifice has certain value. And of course, you need an infinite, infinitely valuable sacrifice to atone for all sins for all time and grant eternal life. This, this is profoundly intimate to the gospel and why you need Jesus' nature to be divine and why the incarnation is both a divine has a divine component and a human component. Because the human component is the part needed to be the propitiation for us. And the divine component is the part that forgives sins and redeems the nature and glory of God, character of God. You need both. That's why the Son of God not only is eternal, but is also God. He's divine. And we looked at that in the previous episode. But now there's this objection, and we'll cover it really quick, which is kenosis. And we'll actually cover this next time a little more, but I wanted to bring it up, just just a little review in this episode, which is in Philippians 2, verse 7. And the verse reads, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this emptying that's happening in Philippians 2, It's called kenosis, and there's a lot of people that believe that Christ emptied his divinity. He didn't have divinity when he was walking the earth, and this is simply not true. And we'll look at this more in detail next time, but I wanted to bring it up because, again, everything has to be read in context. This verse is taken out of context, out of all of the context we've discussed today. 
with Jesus' own testimony, with the testimony of the apostles, with what Son of Man means, with what Son of God means, all of this context, which clearly teaches that Jesus is God, and why having dual natures, both human and divine, is absolutely necessary to the gospel, to our understanding of what's going on. So remember that eternal sonship doesn't mean eternal subordination. Just because Jesus took on the form of a servant, just because he's called the Son of God, we don't project these things, our earthly understanding, onto the infinite God. Just because we have sons, we don't project that onto the Son of God. Just because he took on the form of a servant doesn't mean he was just a human being or that he was created. Eternal subordination, and we're going to look at this next time in great detail, but I had to set it up today with sonship. Eternal subordination means that Jesus is different than the Father. It has to be. There was incarnational subordination, that Jesus showed obedience because he was the propitiation for our sins. He was the model. He showed you, first off, how it should be done, but he was completely obedient. He did not sin. He, he had to be human being so that he could be in the likeness of flesh, but not sin, so that he could be the propitiation, the one that was basically condemned but was innocent. And his account can be given propitiated to us, and so we're saved because our righteousness is not our own, it is something that is imputed to us, legally transferred. But you can't do that if Jesus is created. Jesus is an infinite being, and because of that, he has an infinite bank account to give to all who have been appointed to believe. So eternal sonship versus incarnational sonship, which one is true? Eternal sonship is true. Jesus has always been the son. And before the physical world was created, he existed with, with the Father because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God is Spirit. Now, how that works in our minds, who knows? But the Trinity is the best model that we have to marvel at the nature of God. So now what this means is if Jesus was always the Son, looking ahead now to next time when I review the uh, sonship, no, the... Um, subordination, whether it's incarnational or eternal. When we look at that next time, if Jesus has always been the Son and he's equal with the Father, what does that mean for his subordination in the earthly existence that he had as Jesus? Well, it means that it was just incarnational subordination. Do you see why this was important to set up now? We have to understand context, and the context for Jesus' subordination his first and foremost is that he existed before the incarnation. He is God. He's the second person. So when he came to the earth and took on flesh so that he might be propitiation and demonstrated subordination, it doesn't mean that he is eternally subordinate to the Father. It's not a reflection of his divine relationship with the Father. And there's many ways we can look at that in Scripture and prove it to you. But ultimately... We have to read context. We have to understand context. So I hope this has broadened your understanding of who Jesus is as God. And if that's still a challenge for you, then please go back and review those previous episodes 
where we looked at the Son of God, we looked at the Son of Man. Again, we looked at the testimony of Christ himself, the testimony of the people who wrote about Jesus. The Bible, over and over again, testifies that Jesus is God. He's the God of the Old Testament. Now, he's also a person within God, because God is tripersonal. And you don't have to understand how that works, but this is what the Bible teaches you and what it, ultimately what it forces you into. So, I hope this has been edifying for you. Hope you enjoyed it. Let me know your questions or comments, and I'll see you next time. Hey, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want in-depth Bible studies, free resources, encouragement, or if you just want to get in touch with me, check out danceoflife.com. Until next time, God bless.